Mentor My Mix is made possible by Pyramind Music and Audio Production Institute. Evolve your sound with expert trainers and up-to-date courses designed to fit the needs of emerging artists and producers. Go to Pyramind.com for details about the San Francisco campus and online programs. Today, I have as my guest, Ming, aka, hey, what's up, Ming? How are you? I'm good. I guess I should have said uh, Aaron Albano, right? Or is it Albano? Yeah. Albano. Pizza bagel. Aaron Albano. What you talking about there, huh? Yeah, how are you doing? I'm good. Uh, uh, Fabulous, fabulous. Well, it's great to have you here today. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to uh to talk with me uh, and uh get a moment here to talk a little bit about your uh, long and illustrious career really you've been you've been at this as a music producer for a good amount of time um but I, i've done a little reading up on your background and was fascinated to see kind of as you came into this industry um you know you came at it from a, a tech perspective in a way because you kind of rode the wave of the the internet uh boom in the early days didn't you yeah, it's funny. I never really intended my 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 whole sort of being was always about music. And at a certain point, I had been band, in bands throughout my whole entire you know youth, and I started learning how to produce in high school. <clears throat> but my parents really pushed me to go to college and have something you know to fall back on, as music is not really the most viable career, especially back then. There wasn't music schools, there wasn't mentorship, there wasn't any of that. It was just. You either had to know somebody or just, you know, have a great band and all that. So and I have went, a lot of I have a lot of money too. I yeah, or have a lot of money, right. <laughs> I went to school for electrical engineering with an emphasis in audio. I thought I was gonna design recording consoles. Uh-huh. And about my second or third year at school, the internet 1.0, HTML 1.0 had started to break. And a friend of mine was like, yo, you should teach yourself this HTML stuff. You could build websites. It's a good way to make money while we're at school. And so I taught myself HTML and you know, fast forward to after I graduated, I had done a bunch of websites for people and made some good money. And then I, I ended up getting a job um, in the city based on my design abilities and coding abilities. And so that's how I ended up funding my studio and moving back to New York City eventually. And New York City's pretty much really been home for you all along, hasn't it? The whole time, yeah. I mean, I went to college at University of Miami. They had a great audio program. Uh-huh. And then in 96, I I was working in Long Island for... Uh, uh, a company called uh, Digital Waterworks, and they were an audio production company, but they did music on hold, and they were getting into the website game, and they asked if I would come and start the web division for them. So I did that. Mm-hmm. Um, David, there's a really good story with David, who's the owner of that, and David Goldberg. I actually met him when I was at college. Um, he came in to do this forum, came in to talk about what they do. He worked for Korg at the time, and they had this workstation called the Korg Soundlink. Mm, was it mm-hmm. very I remember early it. workstation? Yeah. yeah. So he came in and did a presentation on that. And then he mentioned somewhere during this presentation that he was in Long Island. And I'm like, I'm from Long Island. He's from Long Island. So I hit him up, <laughs> of course. I was a very big networker. So as soon, you know, I talked to him and said, Hey, I think Korg is near where I my parents live. You know, are you doing any internships? And he said, As a matter of fact, I am. So I ended up getting that internship. And years later, when I graduated, David had his own company. He had left Korg and left the sound like they had disbanded that gear um and so i ended up working with him and then from there i got a job with another company in the city and then i moved back into the you know moved back to the city from long island to the city and that company, that company was, the, was, the, was the web dev company the the web dev yeah so the name of that company was image nine 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that was it was that was my foray into, and then I worked in 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 tech from ninety seven to two thousand, and the bubble burst in two thousand. But by that point, I had already gotten a record deal, record deal with Ohm Records in San Francisco. Yeah, that's, I find that fascinating that you got a, you're a New York uh, a New York producer over there, and you're getting a record deal <laughs> with a label out here in San Francisco. How did that happen? And you know, that the, was uh, Chris was running the label at yeah, that time, Chris, obviously. Yeah, 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 I know him well. Uh huh. Uh, you know the grass is always greener. I think that that's that's you, you, where you come from has this interesting cachet, right? So I'm a New Yorker, uh-huh. so I have a different cachet to a San Francisco label than I think you know someone from London to New York, New York to London, you know that kind of thing. Sure, but I mean tr- that that goes back to so many bands that said, "Hey, let's go tour Europe or let's go tour Asia, and we'll make a name for ourselves, and that's how we're going to blow up in the U.S." Yeah, and I, but the I, literal I, way I ended up at Ohm Records is that I, there was a label called Studio K Seven that was a German label, and they opened a New York office, and a guy named David Watkins who used to be at JFL, which was a record distributor in Miami. When I was in Miami and I started DJing, at the end of my college career, I started doing raves and, and started getting into DJing. Um, David worked at a distributor called D- JFL, and I would buy my records directly. I was trying to buy drum and bass records back then, and there wasn't a lot of drum and bass records in record stores. So someone introduced me to David. I would go directly to the distributor, to buy my records and cutting out the record store because David liked the music that I liked. Mm-hmm. And so he couldn't really sell all these drum and bass and jungle records to the record store, but he was getting them in as promos for himself at the at this at JFL. And I would go there and get them from him and buy other records, which was great. And I got them for distributor costs or whatever. But he ended up leaving JFL and moving to New York to open the the New York office of Studio K7, this German label. And I was trying to get our music signed on Studio K7. But the guys really weren't interested in our music at that time, and he. And what was the sound at that time? What were, like were, were hip hop, drum and bass, mm-hmm. experimental hip hop? Yeah, it was sort of like what was happening. Same thing we were producing here in the Bay at that time in '96. I, I had a a trip hop DJ crew here. We were producing that sound. Um, 100%. Yeah, called Native, and uh, we we got signed to Priority with our first releases for that. There you go. That's yeah, awesome. So, so we had kind of a parallel existence there. But that's kind of like what was happening, and so they, he, you know, David finally because the the A and R was in Germany, and they were signing all these European acts, and David said, "Look, they're not gonna, they're not gonna give you the time of the day. Why don't you call this woman at Ohm Records, Kiria Schau, who is not the A and R person, but she does sales, and she's a good friend of mine from the record distribution days." And you know, let's talk, and um, you know, let's figure out, see, you know, see if you can make a connection. And we, I ended up speaking with her for pretty much every every week for a year, constantly in her ear. This is what I'm working on. This is what we're doing. Do you have any remixes? Can we get on a compilation? I just really worked that connection, and mm-hmm. eventually, you know, and th- and then she, because she wasn't A and R, she had to bring us in the back door. She re- she loved the music, but she had to get them to be interested, and you know, eventually stuck so i mean that's really that's really great for anybody listening to to hear you know that that level of hustle in terms of building those relationships because we all know that you know our industry is is all about people and all about relationships at the end of the day and the fact that you 
had the you know wherewithal to do that to network and and hustle her you know i'm not saying you're hustled her but in terms of just persistence right really you know persisting in building that relationship and i, I know kiri back in the day she and i were both on uh, the board of governors here for uh, the rsf uh, grammy chapter she also subsequently got into the restaurant business uh, right from she what i recall a, in oakland right she had, a, she yeah. had with dirk yeah lavende when, when she was still married to dirk mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. had Dirk was from Radio Disturbance, and I knew him too. From he actually worked at Studio K Seven as well. Mm-hmm. So Dirk and Dave—that's where Kiri met Dirk and Dave. It was—it was a very family time, like that whole Ohm Records, San Francisco, New York connection. Yeah, Ming and FS really had a home in um, in San Francisco because of Ohm Records, and we spent a lot of time on the West Coast because of it. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. We have a lot of. Uh kind of parallel paths there i mean chris uh rented our space here our studios here uh at gilbert street which is actually the studio i'm interviewing you from right now <laughs> oh uh, really yeah so this was home to ohm records and uh and cascade before he blew up uh, had his studio here as well uh so it's definitely you know there's a parallel dynamic here it's really interesting to hear about yeah this. i mean funny i remember brian um he was Chris Smith's assistant. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Making yeah. really bad house music. I'm, not, you know, it was just it wasn't good. <laughs> but it wasn't that says good. a lot, right there, right? I mean, it's all about that level of persistence and building on those relationships, which is something you've really done well over your career in terms of how you've diversified yourself and changed and evolved with the times, because the music industry is constantly changing. I mean, we're dealing yeah. with massive change in our industry and have been for well over ten years now. Um, and you're one of those guys who's been able to adapt and uh, use your intelligence and your your skills to really adapt to the changing in, of these times. And that's something I've really admired about um, how you've built your career. So would you say Ohm was like one of your first big breaks, your deal yeah, with Ohm? Was a, Ohm was a big break for us in a lot of ways. The, it taught me... For, well, I'm a student of the game. That's basically my per- personality. Whatever I do, I'm always studying. You know, I may I may have enough knowledge to get into something, but I really am always studying. So what I learned from Ohm Records, well, first of all, it took us forever to get, we put out singles with them, but it took us forever to get really, in, you know, signed and, and start moving with them. Um, but we got lucky and got on their deep concentration tour. And because they were interested in signing us, we ended up doing all 30 dates. Mm-hmm. And that tour basically was like a trial by fire, how to tour on a, on a shoestring budget and where how you make money and what's possible on tour and how you build an audience. And that was really like going to like graduate school for touring for me. Mm-hmm. And I just fucked all of it up. I learned, you know, the finances of touring, how to sell merchandise, how you book shows, who can book shows for you, how you get on festivals. You know, so we did those 30 dates, and then we ended up signing a deal with Ohm. It was a f- three-album deal. And f- then, you know, our first album did very well. So from there, I learned how to do press, how to build press relationships. This is when magazines were king, not there were some blogs. and Right, um, right, right, yeah. And, you know, social media. So I really learned how the importance of good photography, good photos, how to have good relationships with, the you know, the media. Um you know, because the media, if they don't like you, they're not going to cover you. Now, so, all, all, you were doing all this while still juggling um, a full-time job or or, <laughs> or that yeah. you were able to, you got out of that, right? They That was kind of the internet boom bust and yes you and kind no. of pulled the ripcord and then right. were able the to move into worked, this. Yeah. The way that it worked for me is that Fred, 
Fred Sargolini, who was FS, he was already working for a production company called The Characters. When he, we, he and I played in a rock band together, and while we were playing in a rock band, we started making electronic music. And while we were making the electronic music, I was able to get those signed to labels. Um, and that we had, and then we had a, a pop electronic group called Beat Tree, which was like a predecessor to Sugar Ray. It was like sort of like this pop vocal electronic group. And we had this weird experimental underground dance music that we were doing. We thought that we were gonna get signed as Beat Tree because um, we had major labels coming to see us play. We had a, a big powered attorney and um, and I was working full time during all of this. And I was funding our career basically. I moved mm -hmm. him into our, I, we had a two bedroom apartment on, in Hell's Kitchen. Um, so he could make music 24 hours a day full time while I had to work during the day. And then I would come home, rest a couple hours, then get in the studio, work for a whole bunch of hours. And then I would go out every single night, seven days a week to network. And I did that for about three or four years. While I was doing all that, meeting everybody in the industry, like making all my connections, um, the deal for Ohm came up. And we actually, in our deal with Ohm, it says they could sign all of our electronic music, but they couldn't sign any music that was considered beat tree music because we were sure we were gonna get this major label deal. Well, the major label deal never happened. And this little San Francisco darling label with this weird, insane electronic music that we thought no one would like ended up being a career starter for us. So, Now, why, why did you think no one would like it? Because well, it was just weird, bugged out, experimental music and most people hadn't heard of sort of trip hop and drum and bass and jungle and weird rave music. It wasn't popular like it is, like it's a thing now. You can be a DJ. That wasn't a thing when I was coming up. Right. There was, you know, DJ crews, there was the executioners, there was there was Mark Farina, there was Joss Wink, there was, you know, there was some um, there was the scratch Arnold. pickles. There was Apollo. But that I was mean, early. And that was I like, know, I know. I did I did their first album. I recorded their first album with the pickles, uh doing uh, Retina of the Third Eye here at Gilbert Street, as a matter of fact. That's in the awesome. very studio I'm interviewing you at. But I'm saying like it wasn't <laughs> a lot of history here. It yeah. wasn't yeah. A, it wasn't a um it wasn't a career, <laughs> so to speak. It wasn't like there was this system, you know, you Yeah. It was, so we basically made a career for ourselves in this weird underground market that didn't mm -hmm. have a system set up for it. The clubs didn't have the proper sound system. Almost every club that we had to go to, we had to rewire it and re-EQ it so that when we played, it sounded good. We played everything from hip hop clubs to rave. And who would do that? Who would rewire and re-EQ the would, system? Fred would and I, we would yeah, literally yeah. come in and the thing would be a total mess and we'd be like, okay, I guess we're, instead of doing sound check, we're gonna spend two hours figuring this out. And we would just re-EQ the room, rewire whatever we had to rewire, like just do it. Mm -hmm. And everyone would be amazed at how good we sounded. It was because we spent, instead of, you know, effing off like other bands would do, we would literally go in and make sure it sounded good before we played. Yeah, that's huge. Uh, I mean, if anybody is listening to this, they should be really keying in on the diversity of skill sets that um, you, you bring to the table here. Both, you know, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, literally having a tech man. background, uh, <laughs> yeah, then being able to produce multiple genres of music, you know, and then, you know, hedging your bets in a way. It's like you, you kind of, you, you, you hedged your bet. You got a deal on a, on a style and a genre of music that you, you didn't think was going to be the one to get signed, right? right? And then on top of that, you, 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 you know, setting up your own 
career by investing in yourselves and developing your sound and then being able to go on tour and investing in that. So there's a lot of diversity here. And I think that speaks to both your tenacity, but also just your own brilliance in many ways. So I mean, I think the important thing that people should understand is how hard I hustled. We, Fred and I both hustled very hard, but I looked at everything as sort of like an opportunity to learn something. So if I was spending money on something, it was so that I could learn about how that thing worked. If I made merchandise, if I took money that I made from the internet business and put it into merchandise, I was learning how that business worked, even if we didn't do well with that merchandise. Like if we had you know, t-shirts that didn't do well, well then we would just give away 500 t-shirts on tour and it would become promotional. I never looked at any of the mistakes that we made as mistakes because they were all just sort of, I, you know, the, the term sort of failing forward. Mm-hmm. That's kind yeah. of how I look at the music business is that you just need to fail endlessly. I mean, the music business is 90% failure. Yeah. All you need is, a, is a, a small percentage of success that's big enough that gets you past the next guy. And mm-hmm. most people give up way before they get a chance to taste any of the success. Well, that was the essence of the major label deals back in the, you know, the right. golden age of music. They'd basically cross collateralize all their deals knowing that they were going to lose nine on 90% of them. But if they won on 10%, that would float the whole boat. Uh, times have changed though. Right. Yeah. And a lot of that is, um, you know, driven by fierce hustle you know, and people really, you know, self-releasing and putting out their own music over these various many different uh, distribution platforms now. Uh, I know you've got your own label, you've got your own production company, um, and you're doing commercial production work as well, right? Yeah, I mean, I've since, so Ming and FS had a 10-year run. In 2006, we disbanded. And at that point, I had learned how to do commercial music because of a I had been scratching on a bunch of commercials. I scratched on a Britney Spears Pepsi commercial. Uh-huh. I, I stumbled into a whole kinds of crazy stuff. This is a good story. So there was a there was a commercial music house called Crushing in New York, and we had um, because we had done that Nissan Sounds campaign with Michael Frick at Bophonics. It was um, where we mic the car sounds of the car and we turned that into a, a, a track, and we ended up being in the commercial, and that commercial ended up paying for a tour. Um, you, we, I can't wait a minute. That was you? That's me. Ah, I've used that commercial in uh, several of our music business classes as an, exa- as, a, as an example of how to be super creative in your approach to developing the, a soundtrack. The one that they did years later, someone else copied it. Oh, maybe so, but where, you know, you're sampling all the car sounds, the doors, yeah. the horn, the beeps, the, the seatbelts, the whole thing, right? And yeah, then turn it into a track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. <laughs> I didn't even realize that was you. That's, That's, <laughs> so I got I to go back and relook at that now. The story with that, this is, again, another one of those crazy stories. I got a call from, I think it was from Michael, who said, you know, we got a short list of people we'd like to have make music. You know, can you make music out of car sounds? I was like, we can make music out of anything, whatever. Just what do you what do you need? That's the never and, say no. I love attitude, man. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I was like, this sounds cool to me. You right. know, and that was the difference between Fred and I. And and let me give you a. Fred knew how to produce records. He was an already a record producer. When mm-hmm. I started working with Fred, I was a guitar player. I played in a million bands. I did not know how to make records like Fred did. So my partnership with Fred, I learned, you know, like all my production skills in the beginning from him. Mm. And so I was, you know, he was more often wanting to say no because he was, you know, in his mind, it was like, oh, here comes the trouble, right? Mm -hmm. But in my mind, it was like, oh, it's an opportunity for me to get in there and do something that I've never done before. 
So I would say yes to a lot of things that I think if it was up to him, he would have said no, but not because he wasn't open, but because his knowledge of the business tainted him a little bit already. So I was a little wet behind the ears. So I get this phone call and I remember him saying, you know, there's a short list of people we want to try this. DJ Shadow, DJ Spooky, you guys, a couple other people. And I was like, we're in, don't worry, you know. So I did like three or four different ones. Fred did a bunch of different ones and we sent them like five to eight different versions of, of music we made from the car sounds. And I'm sure nobody did that. Did they let uh, you use the car? Did they give you the car to use, to sample from? Well, no, or? we had all the car sounds already. They sent us all the car sounds. Oh, they had already sent them. Okay, all right, cool. We made the music from all the car sounds and then I get a call a week and a half later. Yo, the stuff you guys sent was amazing you're on the short list. All right, cool. And we're getting ready to go on this huge tour. Like this is a massive like tour. I think it was, I can't remember what album it was for. It was either Back to One. No, it must've been Human Condition or something. I don't remember. What I, year I, was that? I, what year was it? I don't remember. remember. I don't, okay. I don't. Those years are <laughs> at this point. So um, um, I get a, like we're getting ready for this tour. We're putting our set together and I get a call back saying they love it. They're going to use your music. We're like, great. They're like, would you be in the commercial and do what you did to make, basically just pantomime out what you did to, to make the sounds, you know, do the whole thing. We have a, we're gonna make, create, fake, create a fake studio in North Carolina, or I forget where it was, or South Carolina. Um, we're gonna film these two different spots over this certain period of time, blah, 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 blah. Were you guys in? And we were like, yeah, what does it pay? And it was, a, it was sizable. Mm -hmm. It was like, there comes, here comes the money for, that we need for our tour. For, you know, like we're worried about Right, me. right. So, but, we, but here's the thing. The kicker is when the thing is, thing is being, the, the commercial is being filmed, we start our tour the weekend before that. So we're like- <laughs> Of course, timing the, couldn't be better. <laughs> here's the problem. We have our day, like our first two dates are this weekend. And I think, I don't remember what, what and then it really kicked off to like, we can come back for these four days. This is what we can do. This is all we have. And then we're like full on brute force in, in this tour. And they made it work. They, they, they basically flew us back from our first tour dates. We flew down to, I think it was Wilmington. I could be wrong about that, but it was South Carolina, North Carolina. I can't remember. There's a movie studio down there. Mm -hmm. We filmed two different spots. They stuck with one of them. And then that, they came out and ran during the Super Bowl. And it was a big deal for us. I mean, it would pay us a lot of money in residual. Oh, so that's where I learned about SAG. Mm -hmm. I became SAG from that because we had vocal performance on camera. I'm still a SAG member to this day. We made money on AF of M. Um, that goes back to the commercial thing. I think I skipped that. With but the, the thing about crushing, going back to crushing. Anyway, so that's how I did the 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 the, 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 the Nissan Sounds thing. But so crushing, that made you SAG immediately by doing that. And well, being you in can that shoot commercial? these. You have to. You can be free and SAG twice with with like broadcast commercials, mm -hmm. and then you have to join. And for everybody but, listening, that's the Screen Actors Guild, the union, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you're an actor, when you have performance, lead performance on camera, with you, you basically become part of the Screen Actors Guild, and it's a much tighter union than the AFM is. AFM, the music musicians union, is a little bit not great for, for. I've been a member also all this time, but they're not as good as being in SAG, mm -hmm. you know, if, if to protect your rights and all that, because SAG really has all your contracts negotiated really heavily. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so from that experience, that's how I met this woman at Crushing Music, um, Mary Wood, and she was having me come in and scratch on commercials and stuff. And I didn't realize that I was accruing 
all this money at AF of M. And one day I get this call from the musicians union and they're like, is this Ming? And I'm like, yeah. They're like, you have 65 checks here or something like that. I'm like, what? Yeah, you have like 65 checks here and some of them are going to expire like next week. Can you come in? And I'm like, I don't even know who you are. Who do you, like, why are you? I had no idea about AF of M. <laughs> so I go there and, and this is the kicker though. I'm not a good scratch DJ like Fred is. Fred was a really good battle scratch. Like he was an old school hip hop scratch DJ. I had learned how to scratch. Like so, for him, for me to be scratching on these commercials, he would laugh at me and be like, "Why do they want you to scratch?" You know, like you're not the scratch DJ, right? Making fun uh, of me. <laughs> I go to the, I go to AF of M. There's like sixty five checks for like two hundred fifty bucks, five hundred bucks, seven. And that's for like playing a lead instrument on the. Yeah. Or just being part of the commercial as a union, party. like as a union, yeah, yeah. It used to be like union fees for different things that you would do in a commercial: play guitar, play bass, sing. You know, and so I, I, you know, what what came back with this wad of money, basically being like, "This is what you've been laughing at me." And then we both like had this moment of like, so I was like, "See, fucker!" But at the same time, <laughs> at the same time, we both realized there was a this was a, a lucrative business, and so sure as Ming and FS did stuff, we had done commercials over the ten years. In 2006, when we disbanded, I started a commercial music company called Habitat Music. Mm -hmm. And then we, and that was just at the end of the sweet spot of the commercial music time where you could get paid 30, 40 grand per commercial, you know, to do music. For, for licensing, for music licensing or original oh, comp? Original composition. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Even licensing, you could get really good numbers. And sure. that lasted for four or five years um, until the, you know, these big, these like, Places you can license music for 150 bucks started popping. Audio up. Jungle and all yeah, of these. Yeah, all that yeah. stuff really yeah. killed that, yeah. you know, killed the value of the of the commercial music thing. So why is it, it the platform always seems to do that? The you know the, these big platform plays really immediately alter the playing field, um, just like what Spotify has done. And uh, it's interesting, you know, that, to see how people can adapt or if they, you know, can successfully adapt to those changes. And that's something you're you seem to be pretty adept at doing. I mean, the way that you make money in the music business, unless you're a 1% artist, meaning you're like one of those people who has a platinum record that, you know, blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah, with blah, a huge blah. brand recognized right. name. Yeah. So if it, that's very, very, that's like an anomaly. So if you think that that's good, most people who make money in the music business don't get that. That's a very, that's sort of like being Reggie Jackson, mm -hmm. you know, or sure. Michael Jordan. Sure, right? sure. If you're Michael yeah. Jordan, you're like you can breathe, you make money, right? Mm -hmm. So at that level, like you're very, very few people get to be there. But most people in the music business make money from multiple streams. And the thing that you have to be very careful of is being too dependent on one stream of income. Mm -hmm. So in Ming and FS, we made money from touring. That was our mainstream. We made money from merchandise. We made money from doing commercial music. And we made money from remixing. When that ended, I, I shifted to making most of my money from commercial music. When commercial music started to wane, at that point, EDM was starting to happen and I wanted to get back out there as a DJ and I was really into house music. And so I got back into the game doing electric electro house. But before you did that, you had done quite a few remixes, huh? Well, that was about that time. About was it was it your foray into electro house music that brought on the remixes then in well, that I genre? Well, I did a lot of remixes with Ming and FS, but the, That's what I thought, yeah. Yeah. But the but the the remixes that got me the notoriety, the Lady Gaga, the Black Eyed Peas, the the um, Pussycat Dolls, 
Cascade, all that blah, 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 all the major label stuff. Sure. That came when I was with Stephanie LaFera at Little Empire, who was Cascade's manager at the time. Mm -hmm. um, this is another story too. Stephanie LaFera, who was a very, very successful and powerful music industry manager, who is now, I think she's the president at WME Entertainment for bookings. I met her in Atlanta on tour with Ming and FS. She was a fan that came to a show and we went and they took us to a nice like vegetarian restaurant after a show and we hung out with her and a bunch of friends and we stayed in touch. Mm. When she, at some point she wanted to move to New York and be in the music business, she came and slept on our couch. That's literally like how, I mean, that's how small the music business is. And so- Again, there are those relationships, those super, those all important relationships that you, you nurture job, and develop, yeah. Yeah, she got a job with Moby's management, Marcy uh -huh. Weber, she, they were managing Moby at the time. Yeah. She and, and, and that's, these relationships developed over years and years and years and years. And so, you know, a lot of that, a lot of that stuff came from that relationship. Now, you've, you've had so many great, fortunate successes, but like you said, 90%, you know, more, more likely at least close to 90% can be failures. Um, share with us some of your epic failures. What, what, what did you learn most from, um, in, in, you know, your development process that you can share with our listeners, you know, that you can look back and say, well, that was an epic fail, but man, did I grow from that experience? Because I want people to realize that success is grown off the back of failure. You mentioned that earlier. So I think it's important for us to, to touch on that here. There's a, there's a bunch of things I can point to <clears throat> some, some kind of embarrassing and, and not comfortable stuff. The first thing was... If you're okay with it, I'm okay with it. No, no, no. It's not anything like that. The uh -huh. first thing was that as a, as a business person, I was very aggressive. I would get myself into any meeting. I would go out and sell myself um, and sell Ming and FS, sell what we could do. The biggest mistake that I would make would be to sell everything. I would mm -hmm. go in and be like, we could do this, we could do that, and I got this, and I could do right. that, and blah, 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 blah. Like, you know, like all the shit that we were trying to do, and I would be out there trying to pit, you know, pitch it all. And people would just think I was this insane person. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until later on in my life when I've had that happen to me that I realized how insane I sounded mm -hmm. doing that, where if yeah. I had just gone in and then people would say to me like, yo, choose, what are you best at? Mm -hmm. What are you guys best at? Right. Yeah. And so I didn't realize what they were saying was, is like, I don't need all that from you. I know how good you are. I want to hire you to do the things like that you want to do best for us. And I don't need to know that you can do all these things that you're doing to maintain your, your record business. What is it that you want to do with us? Mm -hmm. And so for me, I cringe a little bit sometimes thinking about the meetings that I had taken that I probably, some of them went south and some of them ended up being good relationships, but even some of those people come back and I remember when you back in the day, you were so crazy, you know, but so part of it is hone your pitch. And sell. would you say don't oversell? I mean, yeah, you don't me need it's... to oversell. If right, you sell right. too much, it's like serving up too much food to people. You don't need to cook 50 dishes mm -hmm. to serve one good dish. Mm -hmm. People want to know that you can cook a good, you know, one good dish. Right. And if they're hungry, they're going to eat that. They don't need you to give them five. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and then they will develop with you and they'll learn how talented you are or the th other things that you can do. Oh, I didn't know that you also built websites. Oh, I didn't know you also know how to mix and master tracks. Oh, I didn't know you also know how to do rock music. And they learn because you're successful from one thing in your career. Oh, you make that queer, what crazy electronic stuff. I thought you just did house music. Oh, but I see that you produce this rock band. Yes, and then, and then all of a sudden, instead of having to sell those things, 
they're calling you because you're an expert and they see that you do a good job and they know you as as a somebody who follows through and, and finishes the job correctly. Mm-hmm. So I still build websites. Mm-hmm. It's not something that I do that often, but you know, I've built a couple of websites during COVID that just happened to come in because people were like, you know what, I'm gonna refresh my website during COVID. Do you still do that? And, and I'm like, yes, I do. And I have time. Yeah, interesting. You know, what, what platform do you like to build your websites on? WordPress. Of yeah. course, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it just makes it easy with all that content development on the back end. Well, yeah, and all all of the third party support around it. We we migrated our entire site to WordPress like a year and a half ago, and we're not looking back. <laughs> yeah, I've been building them like that for a long time. So if anyone needs a website, I build good websites on the cheap. No, <laughs> uh-huh. it's amazing though. I mean, the level of diversity of skill sets that allow you to continue to be an entrepreneur in in our industries, you know. And I think that's something that's super valuable. And then you know, the flip side of that is to not oversell all those skills, you know, to pick and choose your battles and understand who you're selling to, right? Yeah. Um, so when you're pitching, you're pitching the right thing and not trying to pitch everything. Well, I should have learned that from David Goldberg at Waterworks because David, when he hired me to develop his web division at Waterworks, because he was doing music on hold mm-hmm. or info on hold, Yeah. his clients were, because he was solving a technical problem for them, mm-hmm. his clients were saying, hey, do you do this web thing too? Mm-hmm. And instead of saying no all the time, he said, sure, and I'll find the right guy to do that. Right. And because he was seen as a very, um, and he is, he's a very clear-minded, um, dependable person that people would get there, you know, they don't have to worry about, is David going to get the job done correctly? And anyone that David brings in to do it will do it correctly. So that's something I should have learned from him and not have like gone out and had to sell so hard. But I, I was able to see that at some point where I was like, I don't have to work this hard. You know, like my, our people are aware of what I'm doing. And then as I build a relationship, I get to do more and more stuff. Another thing that um, was oftentimes a failure, and this is something that people don't understand about the music business because now we're in the digital realm. But when you had hard product, meaning you made vinyl, I love this idea that vinyl's coming back. By the way, it's never coming back in any sort of volume because it's just not monetarily feasible. It's just a token. Okay. Even still, I mean, you know, a lot of people talk about the resurgence of vinyl, but it's just a blip on the radar compared to something that people want to write about in magazines. I get it. You know, if if you're Jack White and you want to drive around in a in a souped up, you know, RV selling vinyl out of it, because he doesn't need to make money. It's just like a it's like a cool thing that he's doing. Anyway. Sure, sure, sure. When you pressed up a thousand pieces of vinyl back in the day and you had a small dance label that vinyl shows up at your apartment in in boxes of 50. <laughs> it takes and up a lot of room. <laughs> it takes up a huge amount of room. If you want to know like what a box of 50, like think, do the math. This is 50. Mm-hmm. This is 100. Uh-huh. Right? Let's do that times, you know, 10. Times 10. <laughs> and, and that's what's going to be back behind me. So the wall behind me is basically stacked with records. When you do, and then you take those records and you would sell them to a distributor at a distributor cost, they buy the records from you, they go out and they try to sell them to the stores. The stores at that time could return the records if they didn't sell. Right. So if the records didn't sell, you'd be left with, they would get returned, you'd lose the money on the shipping and you'd get, you know, they physically would be back in our studio. So we, we were doing well with some records and we would usually do 1,000 to 1,500 pressing and we would sell out and it wouldn't take us that long. And as we started doing better and better and better, 
we would do larger amounts, you know, 2,000, 2,500, 3,000, until you do 3,500 and that record tanks. Mm. And you've got 3,500, not 3,500, but, you know, 2,500 pieces of vinyl sitting in your living room, like, that are not going to go anywhere. They just didn't, they didn't sell. It just didn't connect with people and the distributor doesn't want them. And so what I learned from that failure was, you know, we made a whole bunch of money off the other records. Let's just give that away for free. And so we would take those boxes of records every time we played a party and we would like one of us in the middle of our DJ set would take a box of records, walk into the crowd, open the box of records, take out, you know, it's like pick up the, the vinyl, look mm -hmm. at everybody and be like, here's the free vinyl. And then I'd have, you know, like tons of people just pick up a hundred pieces of free vinyl and they would love it. Mm -hmm. So that's something I learned from throwing raves in Miami. When I first started DJing, we would throw our own parties. And what I learned about throwing parties was that if you made a select group of people, the people, the mavens, the people who knew a lot of other people, yeah. feel special about coming to your party, they would bring a lot of people with them. So you didn't have to promote as hard. You sure. didn't have to promote to all these other people. You would promote to the mavens. Mm -hmm. So when people would come, and also if you give away something free, everyone feels amazing when they get there. It's almost so, in a way like B2B promotion versus B2C. They're, they're, they're the inner hardcore, right? And they do right. your work for you at that point. It's, it's that word of mouth. Like, mm -hmm. So we would, we would do these parties and we would give everybody candy at the parties, but the mavens <laughs> would get like big, like really ornate um, lollipops, you know, like the swirly ones. And so everyone could see that these people had the better like they would come, you know what I mean? Like you would, we yeah. would meet at the door and all that kind of stuff. So I learned that, you know, sort of like bringing food to the table idea that if you did that with fans, if you gave them something for coming to see you play, they really yeah. loved you because they had already spent money to come. They were getting something right off the bat and everyone was happy. So we started making mixtapes that we could sell. Back then it was like mixed CDs. We would burn like a couple thousand mixed CDs and we would give them out at every show that we would do. Um, and eventually I learned how to get them sponsored by clothing companies and the clothing companies wanted to put their branding on it. And so instead of having a thousand mixed CDs, we would have 10,000 mixed CDs to give away on tour with somebody's branding on it. Like 33 degrees presented our music to listen to CD, which ended up being a CD that got like burned infinitely. Probably there's over half a million copies of that out there on that tour. Mm -hmm. People still hit me up for that today. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was at the time where people learned how to copy things. Now, was that all original music or was that like a mixed no, set of like, all kinds of stuff, like right? It was really special mashup, mixed, whatever. But it was yeah. our music and other people's music and all that. Sure. We weren't selling it. We were giving it away for free. So. Right, 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 right. So, yeah, we, you, you know, we although learned, it was technically being sold because you were sponsored, right? So if it was sponsored, there was a transaction no, we involved. We put the money in our pockets. The money went into the production of the CD. <laughs> well said. Touche. No, no, I'm, I'm being serious, though. No, I, mean, I, I know, but it's still I a transaction people, technically, right? I mean, if you were to. In the culture. In the yeah, culture. Of course. Uh -huh. so, so there's another thing, yeah, too. I just want to be a little edgy with you on this one. That's, that's cool. I, yeah. I, 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 we stole the music. It's straight up. We stole the music. We ganked the music, put it on like, no. <laughs> We did, but that was the culture. But the other sure. thing was... We now, were, what year was that? What, what were your... Again, what year I don't remember. This is in the middle of the Ming and FS year, so... So early 2000s, maybe? Yeah, early 2000s. So the, yeah. the thing mm -hmm. about this also, which is important, is that this is when CD burning started becoming a thing. 
Mm -hmm. It wasn't a thing. And you could make a lot of money off of selling CDs. So our first CD sold 26,000 copies on Ohm Records on an independent label. Mm -hmm. That's $14.99 on an independent label of 25,000 CDs. They made a lot of money. Yeah. And that was, you know, that was like a hit on an independent record label. Sure. That was a big deal. Mm -hmm. It's not a million copies, but then you can do the math on a million copies of a CD, right? Oh, if yeah. You know, a million hard copies of something at $14.99, sure. that's a lot of money. There's a reason that labels lament the disappearance right. of the it's CD. The There's a really good started. reason why all those catalogs were re-released on CD and right. why the promise to lower the price of CDs was never fulfilled. Right. And because they could deduct packaging and and you know the physical breakage. Like, right. They would they would breakage, all that returns. Uh-huh. They had the game worked. But uh -huh. so the way we we looked at all and that and people were burning CDs then and they were coming to shows with burnt copies of our CD to sign. And mm. we were like, we're not signing a burned copy of our CD. We're selling them here at the merch table. Like I'll <laughs> sign the you know. But <laughs> what that that's how I felt, but that taught uh, me that we weren't gonna be able to fight that. And so uh -huh. I was like, well, let's join it and just get somebody to pay for us to have CDs that people are gonna burn anyway. Yeah. And let's brand it and put it out there and just work with the tide. So yeah. that's a part of what I learned too, is like take your failures, the things that are not working, like being able to sell as many CDs and, ch and turn, turn that around, accept the change and work with it. Do something to make that be positive for yourself. And so that's what we do with the mixed CDs. Yeah, well, I mean, like so much of what drives the industry is the, the changes in technology. And I even remember back then, Apple having a campaign uh, about their iMacs, all about how you can rip and burn CDs. I mean, that was, you know, uh, in, in a way, I mean, you think back and you're like, wow, what gall these guys were basically promoting piracy right from the get-go. Right. And they didn't give a shit, you know, because they knew it was going to sell computers. And that was at the heart of Apple's model anyway, the entire time. It's not like they ever wanted to sell MP3s. They wanted to sell iPods. Right. Um, and that's the genius of the platform play and the technology behind it. And so here you are, you're, you're making those, you're playing right into their model, right? And that's, that's exactly what they wanted. Cause everybody's going to turn around and say, great, I want to, how do I make one of those? Oh, I got to go buy an iMac, right? I'm going to rip and burn. So it, it, you know, it's so funny how one just parlayed into the other. I mean, you can't stop the, t look, people create technology, whether it's a good purpose or like a good reason or not, usually it's for a good reason. They want to advance the usability of something and the idea that you could carry i was just i remember having this like that, that little brick ipod it was big it sure. was like a, it was oh like a yeah, no 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 i had one of them too i had a 256 meg i know what i'm saying like it was amazing you're like this iPod. Is, you're running with that on the like west side highway being like i can't believe i no longer have to have a disc man and i have all these different albums and the foo fighters and beyonce and all this different music i just switch whenever i wanted to i was like this is great um yeah, well, remember the marketing campaigns around that, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I how how you can hold three hundred thousand songs in your pocket, right? I mean, that was brilliant. I mean, that's know? like my studio. You know, people reminisce and they want to have all this analog gear. I'm I I sold almost all, I had tons of great analog stuff. I sold it all. I have a UAD system with great plugins, and I'm running lean and mean, and I love it. Ten. I mean, I used to make records on daisy chained consoles and tape machines and that stuff. It's not romantic to me. That was a pain in the ass to me. Now, records. if I remember the Nissan commercial right, you were using an MPC for that, weren't you? Is that you? Was it an MPC? R10. Uh -huh. We had um, an Akai S950, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, 
That was yeah, my baby you, back in the day when we were producing hip hop here in Bay. It was the S eleven hundred, I think it was yeah, yeah, the right, sampler, right? right? Which had I the time compression functionality. I had that on. I had that in high school making uh-huh. industrial music. Yeah, yeah, you know, like like dirty kicks and snares and hard screaming. You know, like Ministry Front Two Forty Two, that kind of stuff. Right. So so now here we are, uh, 2021. We just came through a really crazy year, right? COVID, lockdown, presidential impeachments. We're going through round two of that right now. Well, let me uh, let me let me tell you one more thing. About- yeah, go ahead, please. Before I, I transition this, you, please, because I, I, there's definitely the new that I want to talk about. So yeah, starting with that. So as someone who's been able to tour the world, you know, there's nothing like being able to play music to large amounts of people. And getting back into the DJ community, I went from being a hip hop and drum and bass DJ to being a house DJ. So I had to basically post Ming and FS. Was this post, post Ming and FS? Okay, yeah. So I had Did you to, do your bigger gigs post Ming and FS? Would you say your biggest no, gigs? Guess, no, because we played Coachella with Ming and that's FS. What, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, so that was we, a pretty we big crowd. Really big. Yeah, we played uh-huh. big stuff with Ming and FS. Uh huh. Um, so getting back in, we, I thought it was going to be easy because I had a good name. People knew me in the industry. Or my manager at the time thought it was going to be easy too, but it just wasn't. People did not want to. Bo- they wanted me to play drum and bass. They didn't want to book me as a house DJ. Right. Once you're known as something, it's hard to shift that perception in in your fan base or your audience's mind. No matter what, even if you had done that style of music. Anyway, so the. I mean, U two is a good example of that. Even I mean, a band as big as U two, you know. All right, so you're out there. You're you're trying to get booked now. So what? what, right, what so happened? I'm out there trying to get booked, and every year it's it's such a struggle. I went through a whole bunch of different booking agents. I went. I had a couple that I hated. I hated some of the gigs that I would play. I mean, you have to find your audience too. It's not like you can just like get booked and they just because I had one agent that was just throwing me in every um, casino. They like and they you know or these venues that don't care that you're the DJ. They just want to hear music and get drunk and have bottle service, and they don't care who's up there. Mm-hmm. And I did a lot of that. You make money doing it, but it doesn't further your artist career. And that's really what I was concerned with. So one of the big disappointments that I was having was I wasn't gigging enough and I didn't have a good booking agent. So let's say rolling into 2020, 2019 into 2020, and I'm still like, trying to get a good booking agent, trying to get out there and have a good touring schedule. But in the meantime, because that income is not coming in, I built up a very good production career. I'm the, I produce one of a very large band in Russia. They, the, the, the singer lives in Brooklyn um, with his family, and I'm the producer on most of that music. He's a stadium rock act. What's his I name? Max, uh, Max Pokrovsky in the Max band's Pro- Logos Velo. Uh-huh. So you know, he plays stadiums, like literally. Yeah, yeah. He's like, I'm going, I'm going to go play stadium. You know, comes back and we do his records at my studio. He's a great singer. I he had him. Easy. Yeah. I have I have a bunch of artists. So I, mm-hmm. I and I ghost produce for a bunch of people. So here I am, like making good money as a producer. I live wait, in wait, 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 back up a second. You said you ghost produce. Why? Why do you feel? Why do you have to ghost produce at this point? Why do I ghost produce for people? Yeah, yeah. Because there are a lot of people who who make a lot of money touring who don't have time to make records. Uh-huh. The, the economics of making a record does uh-huh. not work out at a certain point. Uh-huh. So one thing that so people they don't, pay you enough where it's just worth it. You're just like fine. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. They pay you that much. Okay. You get a guy who makes a hundred thousand dollars a gig. Yeah, sure. There you go. He makes Boom. that in a day. Mm-hmm. Why is he going to spend any time in the studio? Mm-hmm. 
it's too much money and he mm -hmm. has a team. So they're paying 20% to the booking agent, 20% to the, to the, you know, they keep these guys at a certain level on the road. It's on, you know, I, I'm from the, pop yeah, it's, a, it's a machine at that point. You got to feed, you got to feed the beast. Book. Making <laughs> records as a pop producer is no different than making music for an electronic artist or a DJ. Just that part of the industry didn't exist when I first started. There wasn't ghost produced DJs. Mm -hmm. That became a thing once the money got large enough to be able to people to afford that. On the touring so, side. On the touring side, right. Yeah. So I have good clients and I and I make a very good living as a producer. I get to do my music. I have money to spend on my marketing and promotion. My mm -hmm. music does well enough. But, you know, I was really dying to get back on the road and it was killing me. I was like, I've, you know, and then COVID. Why? Why were you dying to get back on the road? I mean, you got I a like family, but you love it. You love it, right? You I just, love it. And yeah. it's something that makes it, look, I make a record. I like to see how it connects with people. Yeah. You know, and I love DJing. Uh -huh. So I really like to go out and move a crowd. I've been DJing for 25 years. I'm a good fucking DJ. I like, bet you I got, are. I, I'm saying like I can read a crowd. I don't like you can give me a sack of records. I can play them. Right, it, right. I don't need to know the music. Like I've done my more than my 10,000 hours. Oh, at yeah. this point. And, and how do you like to DJ? What's your uh, what's your rig look like? When you DJ? Huh? Yeah. CD? Yeah, are you still not thumb drives? You're not you're not record boxing it? No, 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 no. I, I record box it, but it just you know, uh -huh. CDs with a with a thumb drive. I actually plug in an SSD. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's how I like uh -huh. to roll like that. You know, I maybe right. know the couple of tracks I'm gonna play, but I've got good playlists and I bounce around and do, you know, I read the crowd and do whatever. But of course. Yeah. So, that's you beautiful. know, I'm like trying to get back on the road and then COVID happens. Oh yeah. Here and we all go. All of a sudden. Uh-huh. There is my, no road. There is no road. Yeah who have overspent and are like, you know, these people who have been on the road and like, you know, that I'm trying to get back out there with, they're fucked. Like literally oh. everyone's career went and yeah. mine because I'm, I'm the guy making all the records. Right. The records still need to be made. I made a ton of records last year. I did all of my 2021 records. I basically have like 80% of my records done already for this whole entire year. I'm doubling up now on my productions. I've, I have tons of like records that I produced. It's, it was, it went from being what could have been a catastrophe for me to being very positive again, because I hedge my bets on how I make my money in the music business. I don't ooh, really ooh, ooh, do you hear that people hedge your bets? I mean, you were pulling, you were going all doubling down on getting out there and touring again, but you know, thankfully you're in there producing records and, and you're, you're like, Nope, it's all good. I don't need to tour. Right. No, I don't. It, the, none of my income was coming. I mean, like the percentage of my income from playing live shows was so minimal relative. To, I mean, that's, and again, I was upset that I wasn't out on the road the, as much as I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, I were you upset. I mean, was that your ego talking? That's my yeah. ego. It's also like, I want to be out there doing that. Like yeah. I enjoy that. Yeah. It's fun. But mm -hmm. I also really love making records. So mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, when 2020 happened, what it brought into focus for me, the pun, mm -hmm. is that, you know, I'm really good at this. And now, and other people know that I'm good at this too. And the work is coming in steadily. Yeah. I thought either my career was going to be over, like so many other people, like maybe my phone's not going to ring anymore. But I've done a ton of commercial work, mixing for film and television. I just picked up another scoring job. Um, I've got, you know, t like records out the wazoo. I'm signing another production deal with someone this week. Like, and it's because I keep all the irons hot. Right now in 20, was it 2014 that you got nominated for a Grammy? Is that 2014 right? 2014 or 2015. Yeah. 2014. And, and what did that do for your career? Was that, did that it was, help? It Does, what? 
It sucked. It sucked. It sucked. Because, are you kidding me? Or are you, are you no, I'm real? fucking totally 100%. All right. This is what I want to hear. Now, why, yeah, because, why would winning or, or being nominated for a Grammy suck? Because I was doing all these big remixes. This happened to be a very underground remix that I did for this, that I got nominated for. Right. And after getting nominated for the, and I was getting paid a good amount of money for my remixes. Mm -hmm. You know. What's a good amount of money for a remix? 4500 6500 uh-huh. Can you get that much for a remix these days? I don't know, but I was getting it then and I was getting a lot of them. Uh-huh. Okay. So, you know, you're talking about I could have a $25,000 month on remix uh -huh. alone. That's a lot of money in the yeah. business. Uh -huh. Don't forget I'm doing all the other. I mean, I don't want to talk numbers, but that's that's right. reality. No, numbers are good. I think that, that I really it's grounded in reality and that's important. You know? I, went, I went from that to having zero remixes after I got nominated for a year and a half. Why? What the fuck? What happened there? It must be too expensive or something. Oh, well, can't they just ask or people just shy away? Or they didn't like the remix that I got nominated for. Mm -hmm. So they just thought that that was the style that I was doing and they didn't want that style. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I so don't immediately know. Immediately you're pigeonholed, right? So you get that level of visibility and immediately you get put in a box. Yep. Interesting. Yep. Wow. And, and, you yeah, think it it'd the, be just the opposite. Oh, this is a Grammy nominated producer. I, I want I him on my track, man. Right. Everyone around me was like, we, you know, popping bottles of champagne being like, we did it. We're going to be, you know, I had a yeah. team. I was like, we can't believe you got nominated. And yeah. I was so excited. And then it was like crickets. Uh-huh. And I had a really hard year after that. Uh-huh. Because we lost a stream of income. Oh, wow. So you lost your remix income that year. Yeah. So what'd you do? Isn't that crazy? What, yeah, that's totally, that's, yeah, that is counterintuitive for sure. Right? Yeah. Because they always talk about the Grammy bump. And well, the so, Grammy bump is for major label one percenters. So let's yeah. get that straight. That's a, okay. that's, that people need to know that. They so do. the Grammys for the major labels is another promotional arm because it allows them to take records that people have kind of, they're waning. Yeah. They're they're re-upped on the Grammys and all these people just new life. And they put more marketing money behind it and they get this great they're on the Grammy show. So it goes to millions of people, right? And so it reignites these people's careers. And if they go out and have a great Grammy performance or wear an amazing suit or do something weird, sure. you know. You, you're Kanye West and you run up on stage in the middle of Taylor Swift's set or something. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> the drama brings the, the brings the other part of it, but that, you know, from that's a different animal. I'm, I well, it's also, there's only, I think it's maybe 13 categories out of 80 plus that get uh, put on primetime television. Right. You so you've got those 13 major categories. The rest are all in uh, what used to be called the pre-tell or the pre-telecast. Uh, they've got another name for it. Yeah, it's now, the craft committee awards. It's like, whatever it is, you know, yeah. I, you go mm -hmm. to that, all of the rest of us riffraff are all at the craft craft committee awards. And, right. You know, everyone's there and we're all cheering each other on, but it's not. And then when you're later on that day, you, you know, you do your press or whatever. And then later on that day, you go to the Grammys and you go, you know, like you see all the A-list musicians in the center. They're all yeah. in the center of the, the stadium. Yeah. Uh -huh. And you on the floor. Riffraff around the sides, getting uh -huh. to watch it. Uh -huh. You know, I never. It's, I never, it's the I pecking never, order right there. <laughs> yeah, I never thought I was going to be nominated for Grammy. So the whole experience was amazing. My wife was seven months pregnant. She came with me to the Grammys. So she's with me. We're, we're watching ACDC. You know, the thing was great. And the musicians are unbelievable. And it just blew my mind how good people were at the Grammys. But, you know, that's funny. I was at that Grammy Awards show. Very one way. The ACDC played. Yeah. As a matter of fact. Yeah. Because I was on the Board of Governors at that time. Annie uh, Lennox was unbelievable at that show, right? She was phenomenal. Yeah. I, she, I didn't yeah. know Annie Lennox was that good. I mean, yeah. you know, it's funny when you're in the music business and you know, you know, 
you've lived through decades of like time when people had hits and all that stuff. Yeah. And I was never an Annie Lennox fan, like a real fan. I just loved the Rhythmic songs, the pop ones that I heard on the radio, whatever. But to hear her do that, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe yeah. I've slept on this musician my whole entire career. It just right. blew my mind at how good she was. Well, that's the difference between, um, you know, one-shot careers versus people, you know, or I shouldn't even call it a career, just, you know, one-hit one wonders versus careers in the industry, which are based on real talent and, you know, diversification of skill sets. That's exactly what we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, she was amazing that year. I do. I remember that really well. That was an incredible performance and it really speaks to the the true nature of her talent and what that represents. Yeah. She you was amazing. I mean, and she's, and she has chameleoned as well, gone through different stages of her career. Oh yeah. I think anybody who sticks around in this business long enough has to constantly, I mean, that's what the music business is. It's constant change. So yeah. if you're not really, if you want to like, just get into one track and then just burn that thing to the ground. You know, most bands don't, or people don't have more than a five-year run, 10 if you're lucky, yeah. unless you evolve to the next animal. So if you're thinking about doing this as a career, you have to decide, am I doing a five-year, 10-year, or am I going to be a lifer? <laughs> if I'm yeah. going to be a lifer, you better be dynamic and be ready to change and constantly learn. Constantly learn. Now, now speaking of animals, um, you you obviously produce music for others. You're, you're mixing tracks. I know you're on sound better. Uh, you're on the Pyramid mentorship network platform. People can learn from you. They can get you to mix their uh, tracks for them, master their tracks for them, but you're also producing your own music still, right? You're still producing yeah, well, original. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I'm full time. I mean, that's literally what I'm doing. <laughs> I mean, Ming as an artist on Spotify, looks like you've got, uh, I mean, I pulled you up over here. You've got uh, a lot of followers here. You got a lot of followers, a lot of listens, um, and so that's just one of your still, uh, obviously it's gotta be an income stream coming from Spotify and the streaming services, right? I mean, yes, but it's, you know, pennies on the dollar. So that's not, I wouldn't, the Spotify thing is promotional at this point in my mind. It's like, you know, I get 50, 60,000 plays a month. I've got tracks with a couple million plays on it here and there, but that doesn't translate the way that it does to like radio play. Cause it's mm -hmm. non, it's like a non-commercial network, but if you want to play, well, there you, are mechanicals that come off the stream still, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, but it's right? not. It's you know you got to do. You, you got to get up in the millions there to. Yeah, to that's that. every you know ten million. You'll see some real money, and then mm -hmm. you know about that, whatever. But, um, you know, but you I, still I, I, do it. You still do it. Obviously, it's it's a passion. It's a love. I don't think. I think once you produce you always want to produce and and uh, you, you even uh today you brought uh, a track that we're going to take a look at one of your own creations talk sure. a little bit about this track that you put together sure i am when i was coming up i was a break dancer in in junior high and there was a lot of classic hip-hop music that was sort of seminal to my early love of electronic music and um you know, just the idea that you could be making this music with machines and it wasn't fr from a band. I grew up playing guitar and all that other stuff and playing in bands as a guitar player, but I started getting into like drum machines and sampling and all that. And so there's been some classics like Planet Rock, Perfect Beat, um, White Horse was one of them. And this is what I, so what I decided to do is do, do a remake of White Horse. And the, the impetus of this track and how it came around is kind of ass backwards. It's not how I normally think about how I do my music, but it is kind of interesting. So 
I have this like hip hop vernacular of the early days of hip hop and these classics that a lot of think a lot of young people don't necessarily know the songs. Yeah. So I can reach back and pull these ideas and samples and things and moments from my like breakdancing like, you know, time. Cause I would, you know, remember certain breaks and certain things that would make, excite me about being a dancer. And so I'd always try to bring those things forward to the dance floor now to be like, okay, this is what excited me back then. At the same time, I had just, I had used the Roland. This is such a, all these stories are always so convoluted. There's <laughs> so many parts of it. <laughs> I had scored a series called Break Karate. And Break Karate was like this breakdancing cruise would battle each other in different styles of music. So the yacht rock would battle hip hop and hip hop would battle country. And so they had me doing these mashups of like hip hop versus country. And when country was winning, that would come in a little bit more in the mix. And when, when rock, yacht rock was winning, that would come back a little bit more. Now wait, wait was this pre little Nas, like uh, Nas X and, and yeah, his, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, this was pre, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, so Old this, Town Road, right? Yeah, right, before that. Uh -huh. So I'm doing this thing, um, but the the caveat was they wanted to sound like the original music. They don't want it to sound like a modern version of the original music, you know, the original hip hop, 90s, 80s, 90s hip hop. So I went back and I only used the Roland Cloud series stuff. That was I limited my <laughs> only yeah. using uh -huh. 808, 909, 303, uh -huh. all SH101, all of the original, you know, Juno, all the original stuff that was around during that time so that the music I made would sound like that no matter what I did. Mm -hmm. And so I did like 30 different tracks for them for the, to score this thing. And then they, you know, we, we put it all in there and I would do the interstitials anyway. But from that, I started to fall in love with the Rolling Cloud stuff. I was like, oh, this is amazing. It sounds like all the old original Rolling stuff that I used to own. So I got myself a subscription and I was working on an indie dance track for myself, kind of messing with the 303 and, you know, getting into the Roland Cloud 303 and all that. And that's where the impetus of this track came from. And while I was doing the stuff with the 303, it kept reminding me somehow, even though it's the original White Horse has nothing to do with that, it just sounded like White Horse to me. And I kept singing in my mind, if you want to ride, ride the white pony over what I was doing. And I, and I was, my plan was to do a scratch vocal and have somebody else sing it. But then I just, it wasn't that I got lazy. I was just like, well, let me just make this work. It sounds good enough. I'll tune it into place. I'll put some effects on it and I'll be the singer on it. And it was like, so I ended up doing a full production, a remake of White Horse. That's, you know, 100% me. That's awesome. So uh, so I, I know we're going to uh, get a chance to take a look at this track with you, which I'm excited to do. Uh, before we do that, so tell us about your vocal chain. Um, what do you set up when you record vocals? And, and in this case, even your own vocal, uh, what, what do you like to set up? What do you throw, what do you throw down with? Well, the, the, my, my, my main vocal chain generally <clears throat> with pretty much everyone. Now, I, I will change mics and try different things depending on who the vocalist is. But I mm -hmm. have a very... Um, my way, my, my way into the DAW, I try to be as transparent as possible with a slight bit of oh shit protection. So the, what I like to do is microphone. I, I usually use an AKG 414 or something like that. Clean mm -hmm. mid range mm -hmm. microphone that doesn't have that much color on it to bring it in. Sure. I'm going into my UAD, um, in the UAD, in the unison preamp, I'm using a 1073. Um, and I only use the EQ and the 1073 to roll out the rumble 
and just let it run through the EQ. I'm so not you're running this through uh, the Apollo console, and then you're using virtual plugs or using hardware? Using virtual plugs. That's I what I thought. I got rid of all my hardware. I got, I had, a, I had Neves. I had SS. I had everything. So you're using Universal Audio modeling for all of this, yes. right? I on the it. way in. This is on the right. way into the DAW. Right. So, on the, but you're input monitoring on the console, so you got no latency issues. And... Right. I'm, I'm input monitoring on the console, which is mm -hmm. actually how we're, we're doing this now. I'm listening. Exactly. To yeah. So, so I'll go uh, Unison. I'm doing the same thing on my end. There you go. 1073. <laughs> And then I will put on a little bit of the, uh, the Teletronics LA-2A Silver on uh, the way in. Now, uh, I'm not using the LA-2A. And you're doing that pre-roll-off of the EQ? After roll-off. Or post-roll-off, post right? Post yeah, roll -off. sorry, I meant to say post-roll-off. Only yeah, yeah. for if the, if the person on the microphone gets a little bit crazy. Uh-huh. So you're putting because a slight bit of compression on there to, to not just LA put the classic compression. I'm just uh -huh. using, I like the sound of the LA-2A. It's a little dirty. Yeah. I'm using it just in case somebody hits the microphone too hard so that I don't get too much distortion coming in. So I'm slow not, attack, slow, slow attack on that. Yeah, with, slow attack. And it's just kind of like, it's just, it doesn't even engage really uh -huh. unless you like really hit a high note. Unless you get aggressive with it. Uh -huh. Now, also, I do a lot of um, physical pre-production. If I'm, this isn't for myself, I guess for myself, but I teach vocalists how to self-compress mm -hmm. prior to singing or doing anything on the microphone. Good if mic ever, technique, fundamentally, right? Yeah. So, like, if you ever see somebody on the, a good vocalist on stage, I'll use my phone for it. You'll see them be like, "The greatest love of all," you know, like they sure. back the mic away and they bring it back in. Sure. And that and people don't realize that's not just like, "Hey, look at me, I'm doing this with a microphone." Yeah. It's, they're they're hitting a, a loud note and instead of overdriving the microphone they're pulling it away from their face and then they're self-compressing by bringing in the tail as they're running out of air to keep the the the, the note um mm -hmm. consistent yeah on a microphone when you have it in front of your face the way you do that is you turn your head slightly mm -hmm. so i'll go through passages with with singers on how to turn their head and when to turn their head depending on where they're how hard they're pushing on certain notes mm -hmm. and if they're hitting the microphone with a lot of p's and b's you know that stuff i'll also have them turn for those things there so mm -hmm. it's a little bit of a head fake head fake you know but i teach that stuff prior to doing any sort of recording because it saves a lot of time and, oh, yeah. the, and the recording comes out a lot better it mm -hmm. takes 10 minutes to do this it doesn't it's not like um yeah. You know, there's not, once people get it, they start to really understand. The second thing that I do is I figure out the correct distance for their voice in the microphone. Mm -hmm. um, every singer is going to need to have a different distance from the microphone. And sometimes I'll pad the microphone if their voice is really loud. Mm -hmm. So if they got it really loud, I'll make my pad it a couple of dB on the microphone so they don't distort the diaphragm. Sure. And what I'll do is I'll mark the floor and put something like a book or something on the floor so that every time they step up to the microphone, they're stepping up to the same position and it doesn't keep changing on me. Mm -hmm. People mm -hmm. get tired, they walk closer to the microphone, they get further mm -hmm. away from the microphone, they hold their phone. So I try to make that physical part of the recording process kind of like repetitive so that they kind of step up into their, you know, it's like getting into the, um, the batter's box. Sure. The lines are on the ground, so you know you know where to step each time, so you feel comfortable. Where's your back foot going? Where's your front foot? So I'll figure that out ahead of time and do a bunch of takes to make sure that I've got that sort of like physical sweet spot. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my thing before I even get to the vocal chain, which is like let's get the physicality right, mm -hmm. and then once I get the physicality right, then I'll go to the input vocal chain, 
And then what I do inside my DAW changes depending on what I want to do with the voice. Do I want it to be transparent? Do I want it to have be, be dirty? Do I want it to have a certain in your face characteristic? Is it going to be doubled, tripled, stacked? Is it going to be a falsetto on top? Like all those things change how I look at how to do my vocal chain. That's why on my way in, I'm really just trying to get a nice clean source. Yeah. And I guess on your way in then too, are you uh, ahead of the recording thinking about the vocalist and how you want to arrange this and whether they're going to be doubled or tripled or how you're going to stack the vocal and, and the harmonies on this? Is that, you know, does that come into play in terms of how you're processing? Yeah. Usually it starts off with precon preconception as how the song might go, but the ability to just kind of change on a dime. Mm -hmm. So I, one thing that I, I learned very early on about being a record producer is don't let the technology get in the way of the cre of the creativity. Know, if you're the producer and you're working with somebody else who needs to come in and be creative and need to be on a microphone or on an instrument, they shouldn't have to wait very long for you to do what you're doing. They should actually be, you should be ready for them almost before they know that you're ready and they should be surprised at how quick you are, mm -hmm. even if you have to practice that technique. So for me, you know, I already have, like, if I'm going to be doing vocal tracking that day, I'll already have a bunch of different track stacks or buses set up for lead vocal, sorry, background vocal, chorus vocal, harmony vocals. They're all separated, blah, 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 blah. I'll have perfunctory chains that I have set up with an EQ, a compressor. Maybe I'll have Soothe on a couple of tracks. I'll have auto-tune on the tracks, not, not enabled, but in key of, with the key with the song. So that if I need to throw it on, I can throw it on quickly and don't have to fuss around. And you do that uh, post-record, obviously. I do this all post the artist even showing up. Yeah. This is all like, you know, you come in and I'm boom, ready to go. Usually, no, no, I mean, I meant turning on auto-tune is going to be after you've recorded the track. So it's there yeah. ready to go and you can just flip it on. Yeah, so and that if, you someone, can, mm -hmm. if someone needs auto-tune while they're recording because they like to hear, they want to be pulled into key, I'll use UAD's real-time auto-tune but not record it. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, unless so you use it on playback, yeah. Yeah, well, you can do the. You know, my, UAD allows you to flip, uh, record or monitor. You can monitor it and right. not record it, or you mm -hmm. can do both. And so, if someone needs it, like if they need reverb in their headphones, I'll, I won't record that, obviously. Right, right. But I'll, right. I'll allow them to have what they need to to feel good about recording. Well, you can always put that on an, ox, on an ox return and then just stick that in exactly. their headphones. Yeah. One of my rules though, is I, I try not to let people use um, reverb or delay when they're recording. Mm -hmm. I try to get them to do it just dry because I find that singers start to try to listen to themselves while they record as opposed to just recording and listening mm -hmm. to the music. Mm -hmm. I find the best takes that I get are when somebody's got, you know, like the headphones on with one ear off, the music isn't that loud. They're using the music for time and they've rehearsed enough that they've already know what key they're singing in. They get the key, they get their like note ahead of time, and then they're just singing in time and they're just emoting in the room. Mm -hmm. And that way they're not trying to hear themselves sing, which makes them change the way their voice sounds. Mm -hmm. You know that thing you do when you have your headphones on and you start to sound like this when you're talking to yourself and then you know, I sound different when I was like, it's like you you're like, why do I sound so weird? It's like, because you're talking strange. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah, sound yeah. strange. Like uh -huh. take your headphone off, don't really listen. Yeah. And just stay in Be time. yourself. Yeah. The other thing that I do, um, and I've had studios with their own booths, you know, like I have a live room and, um, you know, a, a vocal booth and all that. I got rid of the vocal booth. I find that that does not help with making records with vibes. My own personal feeling is, so right here is my, 
you can you can't see this because I can't turn my computer, but right here in arm's distance is where my uh, the AKG is. It's right mm. here. Uh, yeah, so that's your vocal mic setup right that's there. That's my vocal, it's right here. Right, right in the room, yep, right, right the, like a so few when, feet away from you, huh? you record for, with me, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> it doesn't matter who you are unless you, uh-huh. something's wrong with you. You're standing right here, <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I can touch you. We're, uh-huh. We can touch each other. That's uh-huh. how close I want you when I record. Uh-huh. The reason for that is I want to be able to hear what your voice sounds like in the room so that I can hear if it's translating and I can give you the proper feedback to get it to sound the way that I want to sound in the recording. Mm-hmm. So if people always ask, well, what's the best way to record an acoustic guitar? I was like, I don't know, put your ear next to the strings and find a good place to record it. Right? So if you take an acoustic guitar and you strum it and you put your head by the hole, it's very blocky and blotchy sounding. If you go up by the 12th fret, mm-hmm. it sounds much better up there. But if it you does. just take your ear and sweep it around the guitar mm-hmm. before you put a microphone, you're going to find a better place to put it. Could be anywhere. But so that's what I do with, with, with recording is I'll I have somebody start singing in the room. And are you I, wearing headphones at that point? No, are you both wearing headphones? I, the, the, the vocalist has headphones. I do not. I don't mm-hmm. listen to music while we record. I only listen to the vocal. So you're literally only listening to the vocalist in the room. So you're hearing them raw and dry which is kind of what you want them to be doing too it sounds like yeah pretty much mm-hmm. you know in 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 the future where because you know this is going to be some sort of thing that melodyne will come up with you'll be able to play music in the room and it won't get recorded in the microphone we'll get right. to that point at some point right we'll be in like star trek 2029 right <laughs> no, well but- i've seen I, i've worked with configurations where you put the speakers out of phase in the room right. and so that that does a cancellation on the mic and if it's hypercardioid then you can actually achieve minimal right but bleed. you do get weird artifacts if you really want to but anyway you know yeah. what i'm saying yeah i do but, absolutely yeah yeah, so, yeah yeah but i like to listen to what it sounds like in the room and there's reasons for that mm-hmm. vocalists in this room sound different if I have Big Mike, who's a, a big R&B singer, come in, he's got a massive body and he's really loud. Mm-hmm. He makes things in my room rattle, uh, resonate. Yeah, uh-huh. I have to cover the guitar strings with like you know, like there's a lot of stuff I have to do. I have to dampen the room and I have to put him in a different spot because everything in the room starts resonating. It's like a, it's like a, ma- he's a massive voice. Wow. And then I have these like. You know, Billie Eilish type singers that are like so quiet on the microphone that, you know, that you can't have like my dog scratching on the door. Because <laughs> you, you, you got like, the gain up so high on the mic. Right, huh? right. You know, it's like you you, uh, you breathe or you swallow too hard and you're like, it's like. Uh-huh. So, so I do. That's kind of my thing where I'm I move things around. I have books on a shelf over here. I might turn the mic to face the books a different way if Michael comes. Uh-huh. I have to sometimes put other my guitars outside of the student my this room, or I'll put blankets over them. And this so is that, a room. This is a room in your home, right? That we're looking yes, at. Yeah, I used yeah. to have a studio on Twenty Fourth Street. I had that for years, uh-huh. um, but they sold the building on me and doubled doubled the rent. And I was like, I moved back up to Harlem with my studio, and we had an extra bedroom. And I started working from. I brought up my equipment here and started working from the third bedroom. And then people loved the vibe so much. They were like, don't right. get another studio. This is much right. better. Right. Yeah. And that's I, also- I, Boy, do I know that story. <laughs> I mean, the amount of money I saved doing it too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you can imagine the kind of rent we were paying here in San Francisco when we had 10,000 square feet of space oh, uh, downtown, yeah. you know. Yeah. You know, like that was- So I had my studio like at, until really the end of the, the commercial music- um, 
what's the word? You know, like the good days when I was mm-hmm. making a lot of money from commercial music. I had they, to make. I think they call those the Halcyon days. Yeah. Yeah, you had to make like I had to make close to seventy thousand a year just to pay rent, and so uh-huh. everything you know, that was a stress that I always had to have. And then once I got rid of that, I was like, and I was. This is also when I was starting to really focus in about my career again, where I didn't want to have to be working on for somebody else all the time. I yep. wanted to have enough free time to make my own music, because otherwise, you know, if you have to make that kind of money all the time, you're constantly working for somebody else. What about free time with your family? Does that ever come into play? Yeah. Here? So, um. I also have another thing that I truly believe in as an adult, uh-huh. which is nothing of value really gets done at night. Uh-huh. You may have good sessions at night. Uh-huh. You may have fun doing them, but generally people are just either getting high or drinking or planning their evening yeah. or look, going to like meet up with a girl, girlfriend or boyfriend. There's all these other distractions that start to happen at nine, 10, 11 o'clock at night. People yeah. want to go to the club. People want to go somewhere. So, you can have great sessions at night and I've done good sessions at night, but generally it's a very small amount of time versus the time you have to spend in the studio. Mm. So between seven and 11 or one o'clock in the morning, I find that you only get about one or two good hours of work because people are just too distracted. And so my studio hours are 10 to five Monday through Friday consistent. That's, that's when I work. Mm-hmm. So if I'm playing Friday, Saturday on a gig, I'm out of town. Otherwise I just spend time with my family in the evenings. I got a regular night, like 10 to five job. That's, nice. that's, that's, that's what I do. And those are my rules. Life work balance. So important. It's just too easy to get eaten alive otherwise. And so it's so great to hear you say that. I really do respect that. I mean, that's then look, awesome. I could spend time with my family and go out if I wanted to, mm-hmm. if I needed to go see your band play, cause maybe you want me to produce you. Mm-hmm. I have dinner with my family, you know, put my kids to sleep. My wife and I watch a show on television. She goes to bed and I go out, mm-hmm. you know, see, yeah. see, a, you know, see you at the club. You're not mm-hmm. starting till 1130 anyway. She's going to yeah. go to sleep. Right. Yeah. So, makes sense. Yeah. Makes a whole lot of sense. All right. So um, let's check out this uh, track of yours here. Let's talk a little bit about what you did and how you approach it. I love, I love the kind of lead in that we were able to go through on the vocal chain here. Um, so let's see a little bit uh, the results of uh, White Horse. And now you produce in Logic, right? This is, yes. uh, you're exclusively producing in Logic, right? Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. I do mentor in Ableton and I can mentor in other DAWs. The DAW really is independent for me, but I prefer. I'm from the console times, so I prefer logic in the sense of it's a console-based DAW with mm-hmm. its tracking. You know, you look at the things differently. Tra- tracking is your tape machine. You know, the DAW, the the, <laughs> the faders and all that are your 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 mixing console and all that. Right, so it it's just, more linear in that regard. Although the new version of Logic certainly has flipped that on its head a bit. Yeah, because I mean, it's it got a lot more of the looping capabilities, right. the clip-based launching that that Live has become so popular for Ableton, right? Right, 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 right. right. And do yeah. you do, have you kind of uh, embraced any of that, or are you pretty much like I got my way, I know what I'm doing, and that's not really uh, necessary. That's not necessary for me because I'm pretty. Um, I'm a very linear producer. Like if you're like, oh, I love this drum beat. I'll have a program before you can find a sample. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm just really proficient at programming and getting to the heart of what it is that I want to do. I mean, there's nothing wrong with like loop-based production. That's how you, you know, we used to do it on an MPC. Sure, but sure. Now sure. I'll literally just be like, oh, I'm going to program the drums. I'm going to cut, you know, blah, 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 blah. I'm just, it just comes out of me so quickly. Sometimes I don't even realize I produced the song. That's how fast. Like I just vomit music at this point. Um, you know, honestly, like sometimes I go back and I'm like, yeah, this is a good track. Ah, I, I knew this, you know? Uh-huh. That's awesome. 
Hey, man, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, and you made this easy, man. That's why people like me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not 5%. I make everything easy. <laughs> yeah, brother. Heavy lift. That's another. That's what something else that I should have. I should have said is, you know, bring food to the table and heavy lift, meaning uh -huh. like don't expect anyone to do anything for you. Just do it. Right. You know, just do it and someone will start doing it with you. Yeah. yeah. You know, because if you if you can heavy lift, someone's like, you know what? That guy's carrying all the groceries. I can grab a bag. Let's go. You know. I'm finally That's learning to let others carry some of those groceries for me. Matter of fact, I tell my little girl that all the time now. She says, Daddy, what can I do for you? I said, pick up a bag of groceries, sweetheart. There you go. <laughs> take your plate to the sink. That's right. That's right. right Have a good weekend. I'll speak to you soon. All right. You too. Take care. Cheers. Remember, if you have a guest suggestion or want to contact me for any reason, we have a contact form on the Mentor My Mix website. That's MentorMyMix.com. Or feel free to email me at Greg at MentorMyMix.com. Special thanks to Quinn Grodzins for the theme music and audio editing, Josh Valdez and Sean McKenna for audio and video production, and Corey Schubert for video editing and post-production. If you want to